Can you hear me? Oh, there it is. Great. Well, Merry Christmas. It's good to see all of you looking as handsome as possible. And uh, <laughs> I do want to invite those of you who don't get to be here normally every week that um, uh, our next series we're going to start January 8th is on spirituality. It's going to be really down to earth and extraordinarily helpful. So if you feel like you met some people you want to hang out with and follow God with tonight, then by all means come back. We'd love to get to see you. We're finishing tonight with a series we've been doing. A series we've been doing um, called Songs of Advent, which are about the different songs. And this one's a little different, obviously, because it's, it's Christmas Eve. And I'm going to read for you a passage actually out of the book of Titus. But I want to I start by kind of laying the foundation, which is, would be this. Um, for people who are here most weeks, they know that I'm not a particularly touchy-feely person. Um, I'm not constantly in tears in the pulpit and telling stories about puppies saving children from burning buildings with cats. And so, for me to, for me to make the acknowledgement of this next sentence is difficult for me, because I don't really want it to be true, but having lived almost 40 years now, um, which I know is not long for some of you, uh, I, I, can't, I can't get away from the fact that it's true, and that's this. Whatever story you believe that you're a part of defines you more than anything else. Whatever story you think you're a part of defines you more than your, you, what you think your philosophy is. It defines you more than the expectations people put on you or that you put on yourself. The story that you think that you're a part of defines you more than anything else. I'll give you a couple examples of this. There was this old saying, go to the next slide if you can, guys. Um, there's this old saying in the Soviet Union, for those of us old enough to remember what that is, um, where there's a, a Russians would say to Americans, um, in Russia, the future is certain. It is the past that is always changing. <laughs> because, because in order to get young people to buy into a horrific way to do society and culture together, they had to tell a story of the past that made it seem like this was, oh, of course we'd live this way. Right? And so they had to constantly change the past and tell a story of things that never happened. And so the, the history textbooks were always changing because we knew we were now in the present and forever utopia. Right? The staff is um, watching a series together um, called African Americans, Many Waters to Cross, about the history of African Americans in America. And one of the things that it covers in the first episode is that part of the transatlantic slave trade was as soon as possible and as brutally as possible to cut people off from their pasts and their stories. That there should, there should be no memory of where they were from or what they believed there or what their tribe held dear or how they raised their kids or what rituals that they had of celebration. None of it. In that sense, one of the funny things about America is the only truly American culture in America is African Americans. But it also, one of the reasons why that was true is that Europeans were so focused on that because one of the things that's always interesting is people say, okay, it was Christian Europeans that started abolition. <laughs> How was it that it was they that sort of expanded and perfected in the most horrific way possible? And it was partly because, and this is a very important point, because if there is a story you believe deeper than the story about this baby, that story will control you. Not this one. I don't care if you think you're a Christian. Whatever story is the deepest is the one that controls who you think you are. And so, 
there was this old British pastor that said in England, and, and I take this very seriously because about half of my lineage is English. He said, the British know their Bibles, but not half so well as the lineage of their bulldogs. You see, because there was actually a bigger story than Jesus in the European nations, not least in Britain, and that was lines, families, right? Heredity. Whether you were a lady or a gentleman or whether you were in the working classes, where you were in the hierarchy of things, and that mattered more than chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. They had the story right there, but because there was a, to them in their hearts, there was a deeper story than the story about Jesus. It was that story that controlled them and created a blind spot as big as a hippopotamus bottom. Right? You also see this when you, if you're a counselor or a pastor in marriage counseling all the time, or if you're just a friend trying to help, help your friend with a marriage. Um, you're sitting across from a couple of people that you know at one point couldn't wait to get married. They thought at one point they were made for each other. They actually do care about each other. The reason they're so angry is because they still care, right? And yet, if you've ever actually sat down with a couple to try to help them get back together, you will know that the hardest thing is not their communication problems. It's not what actually happened. It's not that they're incompatible. It is the versions of the history of fault and blame that they tell each other, which are not compatible with each other, each person's story, and they hold so tightly to these histories that they've written for themselves that justify themselves and show that they were a good person and that they tried hard, and they feel like if they let go of that, of that story they've made for themselves, they'll lose themselves. Some of, the, some, of the, some of the easiest marriages to put back together of people that I have counseled have fallen apart because they wouldn't let go of their personal story to justify themselves and find themselves in their marriage in the story of Jesus. And some of the most incompatible people I have ever seen in the same room with each other with wedding bands on their fingers have made it and found love even though they were blessed with horrific incompatibility because they forgot about the story they brought into that room and they found themselves in the story of Jesus. Because the story that you think you're a part of defines you more than anything else. Now, there's, there's two parts to this in this passage in Titus I want to read to you. It's um, Titus chapter, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, which isn't generally thought of as a Christmas passage, but it will be ours because preachers don't like to preach the same thing every Christmas. It says this in 2.11 following, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These that are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Remind the people, that is the Christians, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. At one time, 
You too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Let's stop there for now. Well, let's stop there. There's two stories he tells there. There's one big story and one little story, right? The big story is this. There are two appearings, right? There's one appearing in which the grace of God that brings salvation to all people, that is all who would believe, was shown. That is the coming of Jesus, him becoming a human being, living and dying, the first appearing. And he says, that grace teaches us. That is, that is, in it he saves us. That's something passively we receive. But there's more than that. It says that grace that appeared in Jesus teaches us. And what it teaches us is, is that we don't have to be slaves to our passions. We don't have to be slaves to our impulses. We don't have to be slaves to the flesh. But it teaches us that self-control, restraint is possible, and positively that love is possible. And that we let ourselves off the hook way too easy. But, the gra but graciously, lovingly, God has taught us by that grace. And then it says, he says, and that is how we should live in this present age while we hope for his appearing. Why? Because his goal is to purify a people for himself. You see, that's what's happening right now. You see, Jesus is telling a story. God is telling a story through the coming of Jesus, through his appearing, by promising his coming appearance, and by telling us, therefore, in the, we live in the middle chapters of that story, and therefore, in this present age, we can realize that the, where this story is going is, is that God is making a people for himself. That he is redeemed, purified, justified, saved, taught that they can say no to ungodliness and yes to love, and that they would be a people of his very own, that is to belong to Jesus forever, and that the character of that people, it said, would be eager to do what is good. Do you see the two themes? Of the grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to passions, and to that, that real self-control and restraint is possible. And a people who, when purified and taught by that grace, are eager to do what is good positively. That's the big story, right? That's the story that this is the first major appearing in. Everything in the Old Testament leads up to this. And then Jesus appears. The grace of God appeared, and it teaches us how to live in this present age while we wait in blessed hope for his appearing. That's the story for all of humanity. 
All humanity's part of that story. You're part of that story. I'm part of that story. Everybody who's buried is part of that story. And everybody who's yet unborn is part of that story. And whether or not you believe you're part of that story, and whether or not that story and you being part of it is primary, defines you. Defines you. And for some, for some of you, that's never been your story. That is, you've never accepted that that's your story, that that's who you are, that that's the story you find yourself in, whether you like it or not. It's the story you were created for. It's the story that you belong in. It's the story that there is, your heart was shaped for. It is the story that you were gifted and created and made for. That story, and you, you just haven't stepped into it, and it's time for you to step into it. And this is a really good time. Christmas is a really good time to step into it. So do it. Do it right now. And for, for a lot of us, we're more like the British. We know our Bibles, but not half as well as the operation policies at work. We know our Bibles, but not half as well as we know how to manipulate our wife or husband. We know our Bibles, but not half as well as we know how to spend a lot of money at Christmas that we don't have. We know our Bibles, but not half as well as we want to justify ourselves in every argument we're in. We know our Bibles, but you fill it in. This story needs to get bigger than that story. Now, the second part is that that big story comes real personal. It goes from the big one that you have to kind of think your way into to the one that is all about you. And that is, is that this appearing leads very directly from the manger to the cross. And the significance of the cross and the work of that cross for you. Right? And you can see that story. Let me see if we can do this. Okay, great. You can see that story in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Right? He says, Remind the people, that is, remind the Christians to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle towards everyone. Now, what do all of those commands have in common? They stink. That's what they all have in common. They stink, right? You're like, what? Because what, the assumption there is out there, in the culture, in the city, where we live— He's saying, tell the Christians, tell the family of God, when they go out there, this is how they're to behave to the people who don't treat them very good. Well. Be subject to rulers and treat the police with respect. And even if your teacher says religion is stupid, be respectful towards her position. And don't slander anybody because they want a little point on you or because they slandered you. You don't slander them back. We don't get to talk that way. Be gentle and kind. Always be prepared to do what's good, whatever that might be, no matter what it costs you. All that stinks, especially when the assumption here is we will do this for non-Christians no matter how they treat us. Do you see where the self-control thing comes in? If you read through chapter 2, in all the different sections, there's four different sections about how older men are supposed to behave, and older women, and younger men, and younger women. All of them include self-control is like the first thing. This is why you can't do this without self-control. You can't do this without a bigger story that defines you. But why does he put this here, right? Because he's going to say this. He says, here's, here's why you can do that. You might say, you don't deserve this. I don't deserve that. I shouldn't have to lay down and take it. I'm not a doormat. I shouldn't be, right? That's not the logic. Here's the logic. 
at one time. Do you see how that's a story phrase? That's not a philosophy phrase. It's a story phrase. It's a narrative. Let me tell you a story. You want to know why you should behave that way? With self-control and love towards others. Let me tell you a story. At one time, we too, meaning the people that we're going to face that may not treat us very well, we were just like them. We're not nearly as different from them as we ought to be. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We couldn't even manage our pleasures and not be enslaved by them. How long have you watched TV and played video games this week? Right? How much food have you eaten in the last three weeks? Right? We're, right? We too, that's a common story of humanity. Foolish, just, just dumb. Disobedient, we think we're free, but really we won't obey the, the things around us that are meant to help and support us and protect us. Deceived, thinking we're so smart and enslaved when we think we're all that. And he says, and the result of that was that we lived in malice and envy. When we were winning, we pushed our win <laughs> over other people. We don't care. I don't care about you. I'm winning. And when we weren't winning, we were like, I got a raw deal. I hate you. And so he says the result of that was being hated and hating one another. That's where we were. Is it anyone here? He's like, come on. When people don't treat you well, is that really that foreign? Is that really that strange? Is that really— Because the only reason, if you don't behave like that, whenever you don't behave like that, whether it's one out of eight times or five out of five times, whenever you don't behave like that, it's, it's only because you don't think you're God. And the only way human beings get to the point where they don't think they're God is when they think there's another God whose story they are in. Otherwise, we're foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved— and we live in malice and envy, and we hate and we hate one another. But he says, but when? Did you notice another storyline there? We're still telling the story. We, this is where we were. At one time, we lived, but when? The kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us. That's an action. That's not a philosophy. That happened in real-time space history. He did something to save us individually out of our disobedience and out of our foolishness and out of our enslavements and out of our self-deception. And he did it by washing us and purifying us by the rebirth of the Spirit that he did supernaturally when we believed— and by a renewal that comes by the Holy Spirit, that's him doing it, not us, right? Whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior. His birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And then he said there's a, there's a very specific purpose for this, for you. Because this is all about you. This is not a big story you have to learn to connect with. This is a story that is directly, immediately about you. And he says, listen, the reason that God did this was for three outcomes for you. He wanted you to be justified. That is, to be totally free of real guilt. Not perceived guilt. Not psychological freedom by not feeling shame for things you ought to be ashamed of. But for God to absorb the actual real guilt for the stuff you really did that you really ought to be ashamed of. Once we move out of that self-deception and realize the foolishness, disobedience, and enslavement that we had lived in. And when that happens, he said, you will experience 
justification. That is, he will count you just and he will tell you so that you know it in Scripture, that when you believe, he justifies you. And there is a freedom that comes from that that allows you not to live in envy and malice and hate and be hated. There's a freedom in that. But also, he, he didn't just want to just— the purpose of justification is not just so that we aren't self-condemned. It is so that then we can be appropriately adopted as heirs into the family of God himself. And that as heirs, we can have the hope of eternal life. I want you to— I want you to see something about both those stories— in verse, chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. That he taught us how to live, live godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of his appearing. And in the second, he says that he justified us as heirs so that we would have hope in eternal life. You see, in both cases, the purpose of us knowing what story we belong to is hope. And hope is the only sustainable building block of courage. There's a song that I like that says, The bravest thing of all is always hope. That's a very great song line. It has humanity exactly backwards. Bravery doesn't create hope. Hope creates bravery. And courage is necessary to believe you're part of a story in this present age that comes out of one appearing of God himself, the, the appearance of his grace, which teaches us until the appearance of his glory, in which we'll rejoice forever. So that in Christ, when we believe, we can experience and know and feel the foolishness, the disobedience, the self-deception, and the enslavement and the freedom of the renewal of rebirth and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and so that we can walk in the story of hope. And so, this is why we gather, and it's really, it's the reason we gather on Christmas Eve. It's the reason we light candles. In, in many ways, rituals are about personally tying us into the story that we're part of. That's what they're for. When we light the Christ candle, we are all saying as a community together that we as shared humanity believe in the first and second appearing and where we are situated in the present age. We believe it together, the story that is for all of us. But we, we light all these individual candles too, partly because it shuts the kids up for like two minutes while they get ready to burn themselves. Okay? And so that the staff has something to do for a week, scraping wax off of things, right? <laughs> but when you light this candle, if you light it, you should. Light it believing the second story as a ritual of that. He has appeared. He will appear. And we live now being taught by his grace, waiting in expectation and hope for the revelation of his, the appearance of his glory. Okay? And we were each of us and are more often than not foolish, disobedient, deceived, 
and enslaved. But when the grace of God appears in Christ to us and draws us to believe in him, we experience the washing of rebirth. We experience the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are changed. We are justified to be heirs of hope of eternal life. When you light this candle, I I want you to think of that for you. These two stories, they have to become the big ones. These stories have to be the ones that change us, that shape us, that make us, that form us, that rebuke us, that connect us, that teach us. To be a people that knows how to say no to ungodliness, a people who knows how to be eager to do what is good, a people willing to bear with all the people who might treat us badly, and a people willing to love in a world where what normal is is envy and malice, hatred and being hated. The grace of God has appeared, and the glory of God will appear.